Chapter 15. The Front and Nothingness. Political Cynicisms 2. Populist Dialectics and the Dissolution of the Front. Quoting G. Gross from Ein kleines Jahr und ein großes Nein, Hamburg, 1974, page 143. Everyone was hated. The Jews, the capitalists, the, the Junkers, the communists, the military, the landlord, the workers, the unemployed, the Black Reichswehr, the controlling commissions, the politicians, the department stores, and once more the Jews. It was an orgy of incitement and the Republic was weak, scarcely perceptible. It was a completely negative world with colourful foam on top. From the end of the war it took about 10 years until in the Weimar Republic a regular military nostalgia broke out. Front became a magic word for clarity in political relations. Us here, them over there. We know exactly in which direction we have to shoot. The apprentices of democracy who had been frustrated by politics had to yearn for the clear relations of war. Toward the end of the 20s the horrors of the battle seemed to be, even physically, Oh, pardon me, even psychically, integrated or pushed into the distance or reinterpreted to the extent that numerous authors ventured an account of the war. Reimark, Wren, Gleiser, Zweig, Vandevring, Goebbels, Schauwecker, Bäumelberg and others. With the, right, with the right-wingers, two motifs are unmistakable. They long for the experience of comradeship on the front, above all as antithesis to the bickering state of affairs of Weimar political sects and right-wing parties. They yearned for the front as that line where one still knew who one was. In the meantime, even the conservatives and the young nationalists had comprehended that war and domestic politics were two different things. With a military nostalgia, they enunciated this experience concisely. Soldiers are apparently heroic, clear, hard, brave, big on withstanding, obeying, serving and persevering, in a word, manly. The politicians, by contrast, were slippery, sly, frivolous, opportunistic, cowardly, compromising, small, unclear, ambiguous, soft, in short, unmanly. The nostalgia for war, among other things, was a restoration of manliness, but even more the restoration of a declining socio-psychological type, the, quote, unambiguous character. To have fought on the front, that gave the militarist nationalists a recollection of how it was when one still felt safe in the psychical armouring of one's own identity. Already with the dissolution of the regiments in the gloomy November, and in the dismal Weimar peace, the soldiers often did not quite know which world, after all that had happened to them, they should return to. For them the Republic was the place where they lost what they held to be their identity. In retrospect, the dream of the front grew in them, where everything had still seemed so clear. In 1929, Franz Schauwecker, one of the more intelligent authors in the populist camp, sketched a highly significant scene, a parting of soldiers into a peace which, with which scarcely anyone is pleased. 
The author ascribes an awareness to his figures that belongs more to the year 1929 than to November 1918. As with Hitler, the great misfortune is now, in retrospect, attributed an equally great significance. Here too the end of the quote-unquote real war is denied. A long quote here from Schellwecker's Aufbruch der Nation. Berlin, 1929, pages 375 to 78. But do you know how all that appears to me? The proper war is only just beginning. The real war, you know. Now there are no more explosions. Now everything goes on silently, and that gets on one's nerves. We've learned all sorts of things from each other that we can use, for this piece is the continuation of the war through other means. Each goes to his own front. The front is now secret. Live well, comrades. Now we begin to notice how difficult things are. Until now, on the front, we always obeyed. Duty does not decide for itself, but is decided. Do you see? And then it is basically extremely easy to follow one's duty. And there we have it, the great German legend of today, the German mystique of the simple soldier. They had to knowingly do something which was practically completely useless. And they did it. There you have the greatness and the tragedy of the German frontline soldier. Schauwecker grasps the point the populists otherwise deny. The German sacrifices of the war were senseless. However, this senselessness has to be overcome because one wants to. One overcomes it by demanding that it must have a meaning, even if one has to bring it about personally by forced nihilistic anti-nihilism. Schauwecker construes a new positivity in the middle of the collapse. Even the German Revolution, which for the right was otherwise nothing more than an, an ordeal, is there stamped with an incidental nihilist significance. Quoting the same source, It is pitiable, petty, miserly, vengeful, envious and animated only by a diseased hatred, a miserable matter of insects, but quite by the way it did something it had not at all intended. It has cleared away all hindrances to ourselves. It has broken down a thick, tangled mass. That is the best thing about it. It has washed the dirt out of our eyes. That quote from page 381. But you see, that is the secret. That has long since become clear to me in my skull. Pay careful attention. We didn't have any other content at all. That is the whole secret. Indeed, the secret consists in the fact that there is nothing there. Nothing. Therefore, nothing happened. Therefore, everywhere people gave way. The new philosophy of the front replaces the old morality. It talks not in medical images like Hitler, but in moral and psychological concepts. A populist revolution is supposed to result from the activism of the men, with a conscience about the front. The soldier returns home, not to peace, but rather they make their way from the lost war, for nothing, to the new and genuine front about conscience. Quoting page 381, We only have to say one word, and then we understand each other in instinctively. The front. Quote from page 382, Today we cannot say it aloud, for it is not for everyone's ears. I don't think it is a great disaster without meaning and without blame. 
we have to find out once and for all why we lost the war. Because we ourselves had the guilt in us, the emptiness, the impudence, the external power. We had to lose the war so as to win the nation. Georg Vandervring, too, in his Soldatsuren, 1928, projected the Weimar feeling of the dissolution of the front back into the inner monologue of a young soldier who in the night train rolls out to the front for the first contact with the enemy. Quote from page 59. And I come across a knot in my tissue called the front. That is a military expression thrown about by the newspapers and the army reports as if it were an easily comprehensible object. But it isn't. For on that front mentioned by the army reports, good fights against evil, evil against evil, good against evil, and evil against good. And so it is a confused, even thousandfold twisted front whose shape no one knows. There is, however, one front that is clear, unambiguous, and straight, and I find it in a secret place. I find it in my conscience, and it is the front of good thoughts and dignified actions, of handshakes and loyal faith. The moral front floats invisibly over nations, parties, blocks, individuals, and external fronts. It remains a mystical line, irrational and inward. Quoting Schalwecker, page 379. Conscience, that is the word that shines today. The populists thus take their credentials from that authority that psychoanalysis had begun to investigate under the concept of the superego, and all the more with its description of the cynic's weak superego that nevertheless demands its tribute. However, in fact, this conscience, for its part, was already drained and disoriented. Good and evil can appear inverted. Conscience was supposed to be the authority that bore the inner front, but taken in, in, but taken in isolation, it had already long since been drained and indeterminate, or the recurrence of the old order about which it was said it had been rotten and without substance. This is precisely the point that Heidegger is concerned with in his epochal analysis of conscience in Sein und Zeit, 1927, sections 55 to 69, and see also chapter 7 in the book The Cabinet of Cynics, the final section. Uh, in this book, he conceives conscience as a call of care. Quote from page 273. What does conscience call out to the addressee? Strictly speaking, nothing. The call says nothing, gives no information about events in the world. Nothing is called out to the addressed self, but rather is called upon to be itself. That is, to assume its own innermost possibility. We observe in the populist dialectic a comparable figure of thought, the retrogression to the nation's own innermost possibility on the path through the nothingness of the great catastrophe. Heidegger explicates the emptiness of the conscience in advanced social praxis. His analysis sounds like an echo of the movements of thought in populist nihilism-anti-nihilism. Carl Jaspers, however, strikes at the heart of the modern uh, strikes at the heart of the problem even more precisely in Zur Geistigen Situation der Zeit, Man in the Modern Age, 1932. 
he elevates the problematic of the front to a universal characteristic of life in the modern order of existence. He confirms that the function of the front, to say to people what they are to fight or work for or against, with whom they are allied and against whom or what, has been lost. In the age of tactics, everything can suddenly be turned upside down. The front melts under the heading The Struggle with No Fighting Front. Jaspers writes, Berlin 1979, page 163. A struggle in which one knows with whom one has to deal is clear. In the modern order of existence, however, after every momentary clarity, one is afflicted by the confusedness of the fighting fronts. What a moment before seemed to be an adversary is now an ally. What in accordance with the objectivity of what is willed should be an adversary is on our side. What really seems to be antagonistic refrains from fighting. What looks like a united front turns against itself. And of course, all this occurs in turbulent commotion and change. It is something that can turn me into an adversary of those apparently closest to me, and into an ally of those who are distant from me. For many contemporaries, in view of the political state of affairs, the traditional schema of left and right also had to lose its clarifying function. What did concepts like progress and retrogression, socialism and capitalism say when one lived in times when one party cleverly designated itself as national socialist? When tactical alliances were made between fascists and communists? When two large workers' parties could not build a common front against that other party that also called itself the Workers' Party, and that nevertheless knew how to make a front with the party of big capital, Deutsche Nationale Volksparty, Partei, and the armed forces, the notorious Harzberger Front of 1931, from which a pretty straight line leads to the Eastern Front of 1943, without the laughable Iron Front of the Democrats in 1932 being able to do anything about it. See chapter 26. In 1920, the Dadaist George Grotz, Georg Grotz, yearned to join ranks with the proletarian masses. A quote from Manifest, Manifest, 1905 to 1933, Schriften Deutsche Künstler des 20. Jahrhunderts, Volume 1, Editor Dieter Schmidt, Dresden, 1965, page 261. There will come a time in which the artist will no longer be that bohemian, sloppy anarchist, but a bright, healthy worker in collective society. For as long as this goal has not been realised by the labouring masses, the intellectual will sway sceptically and cynically to and fro. But, in Gross's autobiography, we read, in this quote from Ein kleines Jahr und ein großes Nein, page 143, we were like sailing boats in the wind, with white, black, red sails. Some boats had streamers on which you could see the three strokes of lightning, or a hammer and sickle, or a swastika on a steel helmet. From a distance, all these symbols looked similar. We did not have much control over the boats, and had to manoeuvre assiduously. The storm raged endlessly, but we sailed off. We do not understand its melodies for our hearing. It had been blunted from so much. Listen here for a minute. 
we only knew that a wind was blowing from the east and another from the west, and that the storm blew over the entire globe.